This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Oh God, we thank you for your word. That today's passage brings to light many things that we have taken for granted or are used to. Prepare our minds to engage with your truth and prepare our hearts and our hands to respond. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, there's a preschool song called Upsy Down Time. I'm not sure if you have heard it before. We used to sing that all the time in my house. You know, Upsy Down Town, the sky is in the sea, the rabbits in the nest where the birds should be. The rain is falling up instead of falling down. Uh, down is upsy downtown. There's a chocolate cake as white as snow. The more you eat it, the bigger it grows. It's walking on your nose instead of on your toes. Down is upsy downtown. You know, in our worldview where fame, wealth, greatness are attractive and desirable, there comes another worldview that sees it totally differently. The worldview of Jesus. In a sea of self-help books by famous gurus where we are told that the answer to fame and wealth and greatness is in us. You can do it. You can have the potential. You have the power. It's you. You have the thing inside to be great. In a sea of self-help books that points answers to us and inside us, there is another book that says plainly that the answer is not you. And that's the Bible. Today, as we come to Matthew 19 and 20, we are given a, a great reversal. The kingdom of heaven will be a great reversal of the kingdom of earth that we are living right now. The way to the kingdom, the economy of this kingdom of heaven, and the greatness as defined by the kingdom of heaven will be totally upside down to how humanity sees these things. So this afternoon, we are about to enter the upside-down kingdom of heaven. Jesus will turn everything upside-down today, beginning with the upside-down way of getting into the kingdom of heaven. So if you happen to wear a hat, which you don't, thankfully, hold on to it because everything is going to go upside-down. In fact, let's begin by looking at verse 13 to 14, the upside-down way into the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Let me read verse 13 to 14 for us, and uh, you can look at it with me. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as this. Now, how does the, the story begin? The passage begins with little children being brought to Jesus for blessings. But then the disciples of Jesus kind of became a roadblock and rebuked them and stopped them from coming. Now we ask, why, why do the disciples do that? Now the reason is because at this time, Jesus is a very busy man. He's been becoming more and more famous. Crowds are surrounding him. And the disciples of Jesus decide to be kind of the bodyguards and secretaries. They say, oh, let, me, let us decide who gets to see Jesus or not. So in a world perspective, who gets to see Jesus? You'll be the religious leaders, the political leaders. Well, they get the first line, right? They cut the queue in. The second will be those important people, maybe the rich people who, 
who gets the priority to see Jesus. And as the list goes down, perhaps you reach the, the common men. And then women. And then children. If there's even time left for them. But when Jesus noticed this, he stopped. And he says, let the children come to me. And then he gave a very shocking command. Look at his command, verse 14. Jesus says this, Let them cut the cube. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as this. It is a shock if you are the person that, maybe not for us, but for them it's like, wow, the lowly little children are how we view the people of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these people. In fact, just one chapter back in chapter 18, I think I have it on the slide, that Jesus said this as well. Jesus said, chapter 18, verse 3 to 4, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom belongs to such as this? Or unless you change and become like little children, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Is it because children are kind of innocent and humble? Um, if you say yes, you definitely have not been a parent or an auntie or uncle who babysits, right? Children are anything but innocent and humble. Children are the ones who can lie, they can show disrespect. No, even if you're a big boss in a company where everyone listens to you, when you come home, your son will say, whatever. No, they defy authority and the list goes on. But if it is not kind of innocence or humility, then what is it about children? I think it's this. The total dependence and trust that little children have, which adults have long lost. You know what? Children know how to trust. Adult learns how to doubt. Children trust their parents for total acceptance, for protection, for, for provision. There's no condition in the relationship. The kids just look to the parents and trust that the, the relationship stays. But in a world of adults, you know what? We have lawyers to write contracts because we don't really trust people, right? We don't really trust the insurance company will keep their words. We don't really trust the bank will return us our money. We don't trust... And so we have to have contracts to kind of protect ourselves. And we also try to live and prove ourselves, isn't it? We all, if you're working, you have KPIs, no key performance indicators, because we do not believe in unconditional acceptance. We have to work to prove ourselves before we get rewarded. That's how the world goes, isn't it? So the children, they come to Jesus with trusting dependence, Adults come to Jesus, they carry their KPIs, their kind of CVs, and ask Jesus, how do I improve this? In fact, look at it. Verse 16 comes, a man. Look at 16. Just then a man came up to him, to Jesus, and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? This whole thing about this, this man coming to Jesus, the whole intention can be summed up with this word. And the word is, do. D-O. What good thing must I do to get eternal life. As we read on this, Jesus identified this man to be rich. In another account, Luke's account, he actually further described this man to be a rich ruler. So he comes not as a lowly child, he comes 
as a successful high achiever, rich, powerful, religious. And the opinion of Jesus' disciples, if you read on, they are the ones in the front line into the kingdom of heaven. When speaking about the law-keeping, he simply replies, Jesus, all this I have kept. What do I still lack? No, imagine if there's a crowd and he, this man is coming in and is telling Jesus, I've kept all of them. The people will be very impressed. Everyone, except Jesus. Look at what Jesus says. He goes on actually to point out that the one thing that he lacks, the way to get into heaven, is perfection. If you're not perfect, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, verse 22, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You know what, friends? You know, in a world that calls us to look deep in us for the unlimited ability to be great, in a world that categorizes us by our achievement, our good deeds, our credential, our religiosity, our fame, our power, all, all the things, in a world that immortalizes great people with great monuments and books and songs, Jesus says, none of this will get you into heaven. This is the upside down way into the kingdom of heaven. Those who have childlike faith gets in. Those with credentials can't. Those who have credentials will not. The danger for us, for all of us, is this. Because like the rich man, there's a danger that we want to look good on the outside. But actually, it looks terrible on the inside. The danger is for us to think that we are on our way to heaven when we are walking right into hell. The key to entering the kingdom of heaven is in verse 26. Look at verse 26 with me. Jesus says this, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now here's perhaps a good place to kind of just pause a bit and mention briefly the deceitfulness of wealth and religiosity, meaning good works. Okay, wealth gives us a false sense of security that we are living safely in this world. You know, religiosity, doing good things, gives us a sense of false security that we have a place in heaven. But we will be shocked because Jesus says, none of this will take away the consequence of your sin. Unless you're perfect, you will not enter. Jesus' question to the rich man is this, are you willing to give up your security and your sense of achievement and just trust fully in me to enter the kingdom of heaven? How about the question comes back to us? How about us? Will we give up everything to follow him, if Jesus calls us to all, would that be kind of too big a sacrifice? Will we look lightly at any sense of achievement and good works or religiosity that the world will kind of pat us on our back and say, great job. And we seek only to follow Jesus. The rich man walked away, sad. 
But you know what? This is actually not an option. This is the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Our own effort to enter the kingdom of heaven is a joke. It's like a camel trying to squeeze itself through the eye, the, the needle, the eye of the needle. You know what's the ending? The, the camel will get hurt and the needle will be like in ruin, right? Both gets into a terrible shape. In fact, reading the Bible for Christians, if you're a Christian, reading Bible, doing your devotion daily, attending church, or for all of us doing good things, good deeds, you know, these are all important, but none of this will add a single credit for your entry into the kingdom of heaven. They're all great things. We should, but none of it adds a credit into heaven, to King Heaven. Because Jesus says in verse 26, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So it is by the childlike faith that enters the kingdom of heaven and not by credentials. Now if this kind of upside down way into the kingdom of heaven is not enough, Jesus throws in a second reversal in the kingdom of heaven, which is the upside down economy of the kingdom. Look at verse 27 to chapter 20, verse 16. With me Now, the disciples, they, they heard about Jesus' words about this rich ruler and that his religiosity, his good commands, keeping commands and some of this did not bring him to the kingdom and they were shocked. And Peter, he was shocked. He's kind of become the spokesman by nature and he says on behalf of everyone else, his disciples, he says this, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? We are not great men. Fishermen, some of us tax collectors. We're not great men, but we follow you. What does that mean for us? And Jesus replied that those who follow him have great rewards at the end of the day. Look at verse 29. Jesus says, it's not just to the disciples, but to us. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You know, in this upside-down kingdom, those who loses because they follow Jesus gains infinitely more. But those who kiss for themselves, at the end of the day, everything becomes dust that they cannot grasp with their hand. This is what happens for the disciples. This is what will happen for us. Now, we must not kind of confuse this inheritance as kind of a payment for their hard work. It's a gift from God, an unworthy inheritance for those who follow Jesus. But it is a gift. It's a gift for those with childlike dependence who are willing to follow Jesus and trust Him at His word. So this is the upside down kingdom. And then Jesus says, verse 30, look at verse 30. When He compares the two worldviews, many who are first in the eyes of this world will be last, and many who are last in the eyes of our world, because we follow Jesus, will become first. Now, how difficult it is to kind of accept this truth. Because the world teaches us, in the game of life is this, right? The man with the most toys wins. Or the lady with the most jewelry, uh, or the prince charming wins. But Jesus has none of this. That is not the economy of the kingdom of heaven. Because if that's the case, you know who will get in? Well, if you're a Pharisee, you're a teacher of law, you're a scribe, you will, or you're a priest, you'll get into the kingdom of heaven. But that's not the way it is. 
or in our own current world, right? If you're religious, oh, maybe your pastor, your missionaries, you know, the, the, the teachers, the Sunday school, these people are the ones who will be at the first line in the kingdom of heaven. But you know what? This is not the kingdom, the economy of the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus has already said, with man it's impossible. It is only possible with God. So seeing that the disciples still do not kind of understand the economy of the kingdom, Jesus goes on to the parable that Nick has read for us in Matthew 20, verse 1 to 15. Before I jump into it, it just take note of this, that verse 1 to 15 is actually sandwiched between these two repeated phrases. The first will be last and the last. Now, the last will be first and the first will be last. So this is what the whole parable is meant to kind of shoot on. So look at this story with me. I'll read it for you uh, and you can follow as you look at your Bible. 20 verse 1. The king of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and send them into his vineyard. About 9 in the morning, he ran out again, saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they went. And then this this landowner goes again and again repeatedly to hire until the very last hour and still there are others kind of still idling around and he said this in verse 6 why, why are you standing there here all day long doing nothing? verse 7 because no one has hired us they answered he said to them you also go and work in my vineyard now what do we make of this parable it says the landowner, is it a story about God who he kind of needs workers in his field? So he's trying to kind of get employment and kind of get workers to work in him. It's probably not, isn't it? Even at your first kind of quick reading. Because as you kind of read this together with me, the first thing we must notice is not that the landowners actually needs the worker. If you notice, it's actually the workers who needs job. <laughs> they need food. <laughs> And they are the ones who need the landowner. The landowner is actually not quite worried about the amount of work or how much work they are doing. It's kind of not an economy of scale, right, or whatever if you are a businessman. But he's not that concerned. He simply keeps going out to find if there are those who need employment and wants to come to him, he says, come. Come to me. And now here's the big twist of this parable, which is what Jesus really wants to point out to the disciples. Look with me. The big twist comes from verse 8 onwards. Look at verse 8 onwards with me. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So the last one get paid first until the first one who worked get paid last. The workers who were hired about Five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they kind of expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they receive it, they begin to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last work only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take a pay and go. 
I want to give the one who has, was hired last the same as I give you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Now, how do we understand this parable? How will you react if you are those who are first hired? You know, from a worldly perspective, the first hire should get angry, isn't it? He should get upset, wouldn't you? Let's say you have worked for 12 months for your company, and then at Christmas Eve, this, this guy comes along, and he kind of works on a holiday or whatever, gets to celebrate everything. And on 31st December, both of you get your paycheck, and both of you get the same bonus. And then while you're kind of grumbling, suddenly you got an extra piece of paper, and look, pay, you know, a, a, a payment of back pay of 12 months. Say, what? <laughs> what will you do if you're the kind of first hired? You say, I would want to be kind of getting in at Christmas Eve and have celebration and kind of barely do anything. I kind of have that. Wouldn't you? If this is kind of using our worldly perspective, they should get upset, shouldn't they? Now the question is, what is this parable trying to hit? And who is it meant to hit? I think this is why it's saying this parable are for the people who are living for the kingdom of heaven. It's talking to the disciples who are with him. You know what's the reality in, in, in our Christian life? There are those who are who became Christians early in their life. They work hard, they give their life, they sacrifice, some of them lose relationships because they love God, love Jesus. Some of them choose certain jobs, they give up money, their leave are always on mission trips. But then, there are some who kind of come in at the 11th hour, isn't it? They spend their life all for themselves, and kind of at that last moment before they run out of oxygen, they say, God, I'm sorry. Yet on that day, both will have the same from the landowner. They will both receive eternal life. The key to this parable is in Jesus' words in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? The whole parable is actually about the generosity of the landowner, the generosity of God. It's the generosity of God who called His followers early in their days. It is also the generosity of God who calls those who have not listened but decides to come at the 11th hour. That is the generosity of God. In fact, the so-called payment of eternal life is really no payment at all. It is a generosity of the landlord of God to those who come to Him. We are given eternal life not because of hard work, but because God is just generous. Now, some clever people may this, take this opportunity to say this, right? You know what? I will become a Christian when I'm old, when I'm sick, when I've run out of steam. Have you heard of friends like that? You know, I, I want to live for myself now, no? FOMO, no? Uh, no whatever. Um, you only live once, like YOLO. You only live once. Let me live all that I want while living. All. Let, me, let me have my career and everything. But at that last moment, <laughs> I will become a Christian. Have you met friends like that or people like that? Um, 
Perhaps we have. I have. But you know what? God knows this. But the surprising thing is that He knows and He still stretches out His hand. And there are still people at the last hour who have rejected all their life coming into the kingdom of heaven. You know, there's a period of time I was thinking about the issue of suffering. This, this question comes in. Why does God make suffering, uh, death so difficult? Why can't we all kind of have instant death? Like you live all your life, the last moment you have a kind of a painless death and just, voila, there you go. But as I think about it, it comes upon me that actually the most general way to die is not instant car accident. It's by old age that comes along with decay that comes along with illness, that comes along with sickness and disappointment. You know why? Because God wants that even those who have rejected them at the prime of their life, when they have nothing left, and they repent to God, God says, come in, I'll give you eternal life. When they have nothing else to trade or to offer to God, God says, come in. Just as those who have worked for 70 years, 60 years as a Christian, you come in as well. In fact, you might even get the denarius before them. Because the guy who shared the gospel with you at your hospital bed, and kind of after that you go and be with the Lord, and he has to suffer for the <laughs> don't know how many more years. And then you get your denarius first. But you know what? That is the economy of the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> this is the upside down economy of God's kingdom. But friends, before we kind of start thinking of becoming that kind of last-minute workers, let me just point out the underlying attitudes of true kingdom people. Those who really recognize the generosity of the landowner of of God, they do not grumble. In fact, you see the grumbling is just the, the the first workers, right? We heard nothing in this parable of the last workers. But I believe perhaps if the last workers had seen the generosity of the king, they would have been willing to keep working for him. No, I've never heard of a true follower of Jesus at his deathbed. I've never read or heard a true follower of Jesus at his deathbed say, ah, thank God I get to enjoy all my life and now i become a Christian. So I get the best of both worlds. I get to live for myself. I get to get to heaven. No. Those who truly follow Jesus at their deathbed what we hear and what we read is often, alas, if only I can relive my life, I'll give it all to Jesus. You know, there's this old song that I love very much. It's called, Must I Go and Empty Handed? It speaks about this man. He kind of became a Christian and he kind of just lived for about another month and he died from serious accident. But this man, is his dying regret, uh, he regret how he wasted his life for himself and not Jesus and wish that he had given more. So this, this person's kind of life became a song uh, as Charles Luther was inspired. He wrote this. Let me read to you the lyrics. I have it up there and see what it means for Christian on the last hour. The song goes, Must I go and empty-handed thus my dear Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give him lay no trophy at his feet. Not at death I string nor falter. For my Saviour saves me now. But to meet Him empty-handed, the thought of that now clouds my brow. Oh, the years in sinning wasted, 
Could I but recall them now, I would give them to my Savior. To His will, I would gladly bow. In the upside-down economy of the kingdom of God, this is how it is. We live, we work, we toil, we labor, all merely in response to the generosity of God. That we should not grumble when we see others who work less but receive the same gift. We, we should not kind of grumble. In fact, we should rejoice when we see people who have turned away and last minute they come to know Jesus and God says, you have the same gift. We should say, what a generous God we have. Hallelujah. This is the economy of the kingdom of heaven. Is there any wonder that the first person who enters the kingdom of heaven with Jesus later on in Matthew, it's not the 12 great apostles, was that criminal hanging next to him with nothing left and says, I'm sorry. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Is that no wonder that the last becomes first because God is generous. Now, the upside-down way into the kingdom is by unreserved trust and dependence on Jesus, not by religiosity or moral achievement. The upside-down economy of the kingdom is that we are called to do and work hard for God because He's generous and we should rejoice when He is even more generous than others. But now we have to ask just this one more question. Why did Jesus teach this parable? I think it's because this. Because his disciples have still not understood what kingdom people look like. The disciples, they seek to be great, but their view of greatness is still influenced by the world. And Jesus is about to turn this greatness totally upside down. And that's where we come to verse 17 to 28. Um, Come with me to look at it. In fact, I will read verse 17 to 21 and we see how Jesus um, responds to greatness. Verse 17, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He has always been, isn't it? On the way, He took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then, the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. As Jesus faces Jerusalem, he tells his disciples one more time about his suffering, his death, his resurrection. And what happened next? In come Mr. Zebedee's wife, along with his two kind of children hiding behind her. And she came, she knelt before King Jesus, and she made the most heavenly, ridiculous request. In fact, before that, let me just read to you what Jesus has already said to them in verse 28. Let me just read to you verse 28. Look at it. Jesus said this before this thing happens in in, in verse the previous chapter, verse 28, chapter 19, Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on my on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here is Mrs. Zebedee 
she she wants more. Um, Jesus, you know, whatever must happen after it happens, can my two son sit amongst the twelve thrones, the greater of the twelve thrones? Can they be on your left and right? Can they be seated next to you? Do you think it goes well with the other ten? Not at all, isn't it? They were indignant when they heard it. But what's more shocking is they are indignant not because of the ridiculous request, but they realize, hey, John, James, you're trying to undercut us. Huh? You bring your mom along so that you can be kind of left and right. We should have brought our moms and dads along. They were indignant because he asked first. Do we see the irony of this whole conversation about greatness? You know what? Jesus calls himself what? The Son of Man. And by now, as we have journeyed through Matthew, we start to realize Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, referring to the Son of Man in Daniel 7, the long-awaited one. Let me read to you Daniel 7. What is the Son of Man meant to look like? I put it on the screen. Daniel 7, verse 13. This is the prophecy about Jesus. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven, he approached ancient of days, meaning God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations, people of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus, the Daniel 7 Son of Man, he will come in unhindered glory and greatness and be king forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. But Jesus as he's calling himself the Son of Man, he's not going to reveal his greatness in Jerusalem in great grand gowns of a king and great golden crown. He says the Son of Man will go in and he'll be wearing bloodied body with a crown of thorn piercing into his skull. That is the greatness of the Son of Man. The disciples are about to follow Jesus into Jerusalem and to see this horrific crucifixion of Jesus and his greatness through his death. But they are totally not prepared. They're still kind of arguing about kind of the throne to judge the twelve tribes. They do not yet understand what it means to be followers of Jesus. And so, look at verse 25. Jesus called them together. He gathers them and said this. You know, the rulers of the Jew, Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So here is the ultimate upside down about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In our world, to be great means to have power over someone else. To be great means some other people serve us. The more people serve us, the greater we are, isn't it? But Jesus calls them together to shake this sinful worldview out of them. Do you not recognize and see the King of Heaven? It's not about self-serving. It is about serving others out of love. That is greatness. To be great in the King of Heaven is not to seek power over others. To be great in the kingdom is to be like his king. To suffer for the sake of others. This whole commotion of greatness sandwiched between verse 17 and 18, where Jesus says that he comes to be condemned, and verse 28, where he says, look at verse 28, the Son of Man, the glorious one, in Daniel 7, did not come to be served, 
but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the upside-down town, or upside-down town. This is the upside-down kingdom of heaven. This is the way of the kingdom of heaven. The way we are living now, the way we view greatness in this world, is not the way of Jesus or God. This is the way that derives from our sinfulness. Jesus says we should seek greatness. It's a good thing. But to be great like Jesus, to be servant of others, in fact, to be slaves of others, to suffer, to be inconvenienced, to lose out even, perhaps for us to die for the good of others. Now, it doesn't mean for Christians to be kind of doormat. Okay? But it does mean that we'll serve others in the way possible so that they too may receive eternal life. That is the way of the king. You know what? The sons of Mrs. Zebedee, James and John, a day will come as you read the Bible, they will recognize this. They will drink the cup that Jesus drank to suffer and die for the sake of others entering the kingdom of heaven. But as we come come and look at ourselves, do we see greatness this way? Do we seek to have greatness? We should. We should seek for greatness but to be great like the king and not great like the world. This is the king's pattern for his kingdom. As we kind of draw this whole thing to a close, Matthew comes back to a full circle with the healing of two blind men. If you look at this, it's actually nothing less than how we started with the children and the rich ruler. Look at verse 30, 31, and we'll see its similarities. The two blind men were sitting by the roadside and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Do you start to see the rebuke coming again? The irony of this is that the crowd are actually the ones that are blind. They have eyes but they can't see it. They have eyes, but they do not know the great one. Instead, it was the blind that are seeing. They see that he is the Lord. He is the son, the promised son of David, the king that is to come. He is the one who can give mercy. He is the only one who can make blindness into sight. Can you see the irony as they are rebuking? It is the blind who are seeing Jesus as the rightful king. And then to this blind man, Jesus revealed his compassion and touched their eyes. Look at verse 34. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. As they followed Jesus who is heading to Jerusalem, we can only imagine how they will respond when they see the cross. But if they see the cross and they continue to follow Jesus with the same trust that they had here, they will not only see in this world, they will see the kingdom of heaven itself. Dear friends, what worldview do you and I have? We too must exchange our earthly worldview for Jesus' heavenly worldview. We too must cry out like the blind man, Lord, grant us sight to see. Have mercy on us, the unworthy. You know what? Even as Matthew is writing, Jesus has begun this great reversal. 
His coming kingdom will be the great kingdom of heaven that God has always planned. And if we ask Jesus to open our eyes to see, we will start to realize that Jesus is not the one that's upside down. We are the ones that have always been living upside down. We've always been walking on our hands, thinking that we're walking with our feet. Because the day will come when the kingdom will be fully reversed to be the perfect kingdom of God. Those who have the eyes of Jesus' worldview will be the ones that are walking in it. But not those with the worldview of this world. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for today's passage as we speak about the kingdom of heaven. We start to see what is truly the way into the kingdom, who are truly the people who are in, and how greatness really is because the great king who sits in this great kingdom is the one who hung himself on the cross so that we can enter heaven. Open our eyes that we may have the eyes that Jesus wants his people to have. That we have eyes that, that looks and see heaven as it should be. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.